Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and join with me this morning in turning to the book of Ruth. We are getting close to finishing our study through the book of Ruth. This will not be our last uh, sermon from this book, so if you are getting antsy about moving on to another book uh, and wondering about where we were going next, we have a, a little... Uh, tidying up to do before we move on, but we will be moving on to, to something else shortly. I want to ask you if you'll join with me in reading our text, and we're going to begin reading in verses 13 through the end of chapter 4. So, Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, hear the word of God. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. And Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This ends the reading of God's holy inspired word. May he write its truths on our hearts today. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful to have this time together in your name. And to hear from you and how we pray now that as we come to your word, that you would open our hearts, open our eyes. And we pray, Father, for the help of the Holy Spirit to come now and be our teacher and our guide, that we would be led into the truth, and that we would see our risen and exalted Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, more clearly that we would be drawn closer to him and that you would do a great work in our hearts today. Father, as we come together today, we are mindful of those who are in need and we lift them up before you. We pray for our brother Shane today. Now we ask, Lord, that you might be gracious and, and extend your healing mercy to him. We, we pray for Matthew and ask, Lord, that you would strengthen his body and strengthen his heart. Lord, we are mindful today of how you have been so gracious to hear and answer our prayers. And so we, we thank you, Father, for hearing and answering our prayers. We thank you for how you have blessed our dear sister Carlene and how she's able to be here. Lord, as you have granted her the strength, and we pray that you would just continue to bless her. We lift up uh, Sister Caroline to you today and just pray, Lord, for your blessing upon her. We thank you for her, and, and Father, we do pray for 
our missionaries, many of whom are in very difficult situations. We continue to pray for Trevor and Teresa Johnson. We thank you for them and how we pray, Lord, that you will provide everything that they need, that you would give them direction about their future. We pray for our other missionaries and what a, a great joy it is for us to be able to partner with them uh, for the work of the gospel in faraway places. We pray for a great harvest of souls, Lord, all across this world. And, and here in our city today, we pray for the preaching and teaching of the gospel and for the strengthening of your church. We, we pray for this sister church up in Indiana, and we pray, Lord, for your blessing upon them. We thank you for uh, this fire organization, and, Lord, it's a, a joy to be a part of it. And how we pray, Lord, that you would continue to use it uh, for your glory. We join now to pray as our Lord Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. How many of you have ever researched your ancestry? Anybody here? Raise your hand. We won't think you're charismatic Pentecostal if you do. Uh, okay, so some of you have. I, I actually have. Thankfully, there was someone in our family years ago who traced our ancestry all the way back to Scotland, to the first immigrant from Scotland who came over uh, to this country. It's very interesting, and I, I think we all just have a little bit of interest in knowing uh, how we got here, where we came from. Uh, I'm thankful more immediately for my grandparents. Back beyond them, I don't know a whole lot about my family. I think as a child, I barely remember uh, seeing some of my great-grandparents, but I did get to know my grandparents, especially when I was younger. I spent a good bit of time with my maternal grandmother, uh, a dear godly woman. Uh, I'm very thankful for, for her and how God used her in my life. Uh, she, is, is, as long as I could tell, as best I could tell, was always a faithful follower of the Lord. And as I was thinking about my grandmother, uh, I thought of this passage uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul is writing to his younger friend, Timothy, and his, his ministry partner, Timothy, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother and your mother, and now I am sure dwells in you. Now, I intentionally withheld the names uh, of Timothy's grandmother and mother from that passage because that could have been written about me. And I'm thankful that in God's kindness and mercy, he allowed me to come into a family that believed in the Lord Jesus. And, and I grew up in a Christian home. Ever how far back we have traced our ancestry, um, what we're going to find almost positively is that we're, we're going to find some things that we're not proud of. Every genealogy has it. Hopefully, if I think back about my ancestry, I can go not just to my grandmother, but beyond, and maybe generations, there are many faithful Christians. But you know what? I know I'm going to find somebody back there 
who did something shady. Every genealogy has it, right? The genealogy of our Lord Jesus has it. It's just human beings. <laughs> as much as we would want to say, yeah, I come from a, a long line of faithful people. Uh, yeah, my, my ancestors are all dear, dear Christians. Well, it's just not true. I, I mean, if you go back far enough, you're going to find something that you're not proud of. <laughs> and that's okay. Because as I said, it's in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I've made this statement as we've worked our way through the book of Ruth more than once. We're reading a, a book here, a story that is centuries old, millennia. But we need to be reminded that this is our story. This is a story about you. This is a story about what God has done for you. And I hope that you were able to see your place in this story. As followers of Jesus, we have been drawn into his kingdom. This is what God has done. He has called us into his kingdom. We are his people. And what began with Abraham many, many hundreds of years ago has, as of today, here in this gathering, culminated with us. It may continue on for many more years, we don't know. But as of right now, here we are, a gathering of Abraham's children. That's who we are. Now, we probably can't trace our lineage back to Abraham physically. Maybe you can. I would highly doubt that. But Abraham is our father, spiritually speaking, and that's much more important, isn't it? Paul declares in Romans 4 that those who are believers in the gospel, those are the true sons of Abraham, and that's who we are. And so this is your story. As we read this last section of Ruth today, what do you see here? What do you think about when you read this story and when you process it, do you see an ancient genealogy at the end of a, of a really neat story? Or do you see God's mighty hand at work in history bringing about the birth of the Savior of the world? I hope that's what you see because that's what this story is about. <laughs> So let's jump in and look at this last section of Ruth. And I pray that as we do, God would open our hearts to see our Savior and our King today. Let's begin by asking this question. Why a genealogy? Why a genealogy? Why does this story end this way? How many of you have ever gone out, bought a good book, good fiction, read it, and at the end of it, there was a genealogy. Probably never or very rarely, right? Uh, and even in the Bible, we have lots of great, great stories. Very rarely do they end with a genealogy. We have a beautiful love story here, and we've seen 
so many wonderful things here in this story. The, the providence and provision of God, his, his divine intervention into the lives of these people. We've seen transformation. Ruth, uh, 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 an idolater, a pagan, brought into God's family, assimilated into God's people. We've seen this, this older lady, uh, Naomi, uh, bitter and hurting we've seen a great transformation uh, in this woman who lost everything lost her husband she lost her sons and and god has restored her and revitalized her and now as we saw last week she has essentially received a son from god obed and then we have boaz in this story probably a a middle-aged saint who is faithful to the lord kind to everyone around him and he acts as a redeemer for a lost family line and lost property and boaz finally gets a wife after waiting it seems a long long time and he and ruth began a family but is this the main point of the book of ruth is is the love story as beautiful as it is, and we can't deny that, but as beautiful as it is, is that the main story? Uh, is it, okay, for those of you who are struggling with how to get along with your mother-in-law, there's a book in the Bible for you, the book of Ruth. I hope I didn't uh, touch a, a sore wound there. Well, what is the main point? Well, the hint lies in this genealogy at the end. Believe it or not, we, we might wonder why there is a genealogy, and the genealogy is very important. We don't like these, do we? We've all undertaken the task of, okay, I'm going to read through the Bible. And we read through, and we start, and it's exciting, and it's good. And then when we hit a genealogy, we're like, oh, no, man. Can I, can I stay awake and get through this? Well, there's a lot to be said for genealogies, they are every bit as inspired as any other part of God's Word. It's all God's Word. And so uh, here we are at the end. Uh, we've arrived at the end of the book of Ruth. Don't write off the genealogy, I'm telling you. You'll, you'll be glad before the day's over that we took a few minutes to look at this. So this genealogy tells us about the main point of this story. Uh, let's look at the last line. The last line of the story is in verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Now the story could have ended right there, right? They named him Obed and they all lived happily ever after. That's what we expect when we read stories like this, right? Not a, a genealogy. Well, what is the genealogy for? Well, we need to, to try to address that. And this genealogy, again, is going to tell us what the main point is. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. I want you to stay with me. We'll get to it. But to find out, we, we've got to first begin with what I'm going to call the big picture. The big picture. What do I mean by that? Well, when we see something in scripture uh, a little uh, unusual let's say 
I think we would all agree that here in, in this story, at the end here of Ruth, this is somewhat unusual, right, to have a genealogy at the end. We have to, to stop and say, okay, why is this here, and what does it mean? Why did the writer include it? Uh, seems like such a strange way to end the story. Well, to see what this genealogy means, I think we have to recognize how God uses genealogies all throughout the Bible. So we look at other genealogies and what they tell us, and that is going to help us figure out why this genealogy is here and what it means. We've seen these before, right? I mean, genealogies are scattered throughout the Bible, uh, particularly the Old Testament. We only have uh, a couple in the New Testament but, but to begin with, I want us to go back to the book of Genesis. In fact, you will note that the title of the book of Genesis is very similar, isn't it, to uh, this word uh, genealogy. Uh, Genesis comes from a translation of the title in the Greek translation. Uh, we, we call that the Septuagint, and in the Septuagint, the title of Genesis means origins. It's related to the word generations that we have here in our text. In fact, you can, you can see how these words all kind of fit, right? Genesis, generations, genealogy, they all have the same root. Now, you're aware that there are generations here and there in the Bible, but there's something interesting about our text, and it's the phrase, these are the generations there in verse 18. Do you see that? I want everybody to, to notice that. These are the generations. Now, here's what I want to tell you about that phrase. Outside the book of Ruth, there's only one other occurrence of that phrase except in Genesis. It comes up a lot in Genesis 11 times. But it only occurs outside Genesis in Ruth 4 and in Numbers 3. And in Numbers 3, it speaks of the sons of Aaron, Moses' brother, who the Lord ordained as high priest. And when the Lord did this, he told Aaron, only you and your sons after you will serve as high priests. And so uh, there in Numbers 3, it tells us uh, who those sons were. And we have to have that record, right? Because many, many, many years later, you need to be able to prove that you're a descendant of Aaron. You can't serve as high priest, uh, and by the same token, you can't get out of serving if someone can prove, hey, you're a descendant of Aaron, a direct descendant. You have to serve. And so with that one exception there in Numbers and here in Ruth, all of the rest of the occurrences of this phrase, these are the generations, are found in Genesis. It's there 11 times. So think about that, folks. Eleven times this phrase is in Genesis, once in Numbers, once here in Ruth. It's almost as if the writer here is telling us. Now, if you really want to know what this phrase means, just go back to Genesis. I think that's what he's saying. So we do that, and we find this phrase again and again, and we kind of begin to understand what this phrase means. For instance, the first use of it is in Genesis 2, 4. And it's very interesting. This is what the Bible says there. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now, what we have to recognize 
is that this word generations does not necessarily refer to descendants, does it? I mean, does the heavens and the earth have descendants? No. So what does this word tell us? Well, it's telling us this is the origin. This is a little bit about the history. This is how things started. This is where things are going. A good word, I think, would be to say story. This is the story of the heavens and the earth. Uh, the beginning and the continuation, the, the history. Daniel Block, I've, I've mentioned his name many times. He says this, In the ancient world, genealogies represented an efficient and economical way of writing history. So when you see a genealogy, you see history, right? You see the history of a, a man and his family and his descendants. Uh, Robert Hubbard, another Old Testament scholar, adds this, The Hebrew word... For generations, apparently means story or history. So the first use in Genesis 2 doesn't refer to descendants, right? But the story or the history, the, the origins and so forth, how they came to be and what came after. Now what we have to recognize as we continue to look at this phrase in Genesis is that it continues to come up and we see it again in Genesis 5. The generations of Adam, and later we have the generations of Seth and Noah, and so on and so forth, uh, as I said, 11 times. And as we consider this big picture, the, the big idea of what generations mean here in Genesis, we have to pause and recognize that the writer of Genesis gives us a contrast a contrast. When it comes to this idea of generations, there is a contrast. Now, everybody remember what contrast is. Differences. Here's one, and here's another, and they're very much different. Okay? There may be some similarities, but a contrast highlights the differences. Now, what do I mean by contrast? Well, the first genealogy in Genesis is not Adam or Seth, or Noah, but Cain. Cain's genealogy is the first one listed in Genesis 4, verses 17 through 19. We have the record of Cain, uh, to whom was born uh, Enoch, to, to him was born Irad, who fathered Mehujael, who fathered uh, Methushael, who fathered Lamech, and then it stops. All right? And then the writer then explains a little bit about this person, Lamech. Lamech was the first man in the Bible who took two wives, violating God's creation order for marriage, where God put one man and one woman together. Lamech took two wives. Lamech also, in a fit of revenge, murdered someone. Like his ancestor Cain, Lamech was a murderer, who then claimed and expanded upon the mercy that God shown to Cain when God said he was going to put a mark on him to protect him because Cain said, everybody's going to kill me when they hear about this. And God said, I'm going to put a mark on you. And also, whoever kills Cain will be avenged sevenfold. Lamech then takes that promise given to Cain upon himself and says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Lamech said that. God didn't say that. 
And that closes out Genesis 4. And then when we come to Genesis 5, we have these are the generations of Adam. Now the point of these two genealogies being side by side right there is for us to look at those genealogies and say, wow, those are, those are a lot different. Two totally distinct genealogies. Why do we have two genealogies sitting here side by side? Well, it goes back to the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 where speaking to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see there in the next couple of chapters of Genesis the extension of those two lines, right? You see what one of these lines looks like. A murderer who, who produces more murderers. Blasphemers. And then there's the godly line. And we have these two lines. You could say that these two lines are traced all throughout Scripture. In fact, I think you need to say that. <laughs> there is a line that comes from this woman, the godly seed, from which this promised one will come. In that verse, Genesis 3.15, God promises to send someone. So that, that line has to be kept. It has to be maintained for God to keep His word. And then we see that this line that God, through which he has promised a Savior, is going to be at enmity with the other line. There's enmity. There's, there's fighting. What we conclude as we uh, think about all of this, the, the genealogies and the offspring and so forth, uh, we, we look at this, as I said, genealogies tell us history. But in the Bible, they don't just tell history, they tell redemptive history. And that's based on God's promise in Genesis 3.15, that he's going to send someone, a human being, from this woman's line, who will save his people. And everything in the Old Testament is moving toward the fulfillment of that promise. All right? Everything is moving that way. Now, that's the big picture of thinking about genealogies, and I think that helps us uh, to, to gather there some background information as we consider this genealogy in Ruth. And so we can go back there and we can look at this genealogy here at the end of Ruth, and we'll try to, to move kind of quickly here so we can cover all the ground that I want to cover. So everybody hold on tight. Is everybody everybody's holding on? What do we see here in this genealogy? Well, uh, there are a lot of names here, some more familiar than others. Uh, many of them we don't really know a lot about. But there's a couple of things that we can see in this genealogy that need to be pointed out. And the first thing that we need to see is that there are 10 names. Did you count them? Ten names in this genealogy, and we might have to wonder, well, why ten? Because the writer could have gone back farther, right? But he doesn't. 
At the end of verse 17, we have Obed and Jesse and David, and now the narrator is like, okay, I don't want you to forget that. Not, I'm not going to let that idea go away just yet. And so he expands on that little list <clears throat> to give us more. Now, he begins his list with Perez. Why do you think he uses Perez? Well, we've looked at Perez before. Remember, he's mentioned earlier. And if you remember, Perez came about uh, in kind of a, a, a sultry situation. He was a descendant of Judah. And Judah had two sons who were wicked sons, and God put them to death. He had a younger son, and he told the widow of the first son, who was then given to the second son, okay, here's this third son. These first two have died, but when this younger one gets old enough to marry, I'll give him to you. That's how they did it back in those days. We've talked about this leveret marriage, remember? Well, Judah decided, I'm not going to do that. And he forgets about this young lady named Tamar. And here she is, a widow, who was supposed to be given to the next son. Judah ignores that. Forgets about it and decides, okay, we're not going to do that. Well, what does Tamar do? Well, if you remember in the story back in Genesis 38, she disguises herself as a prostitute in this town that Judah goes and visits. And he visits not just the town, he visits her. <laughs> and through that visit, Tamar conceives and has a child, actually. She has two. She has twins. One of them is Perez. Uh, again, uh, there are some things in the genealogy that if you dig hard enough, you're going to find some things that you're going to like, ooh, I almost wish I hadn't found that. <laughs> but remember, going back before uh, all, all of this, there had been a promise made to Judah way before the setting here in Ruth. And surely the writer knows about this. Surely the writer knows that Perez is descended from Judah, but this promise had been made to Judah. Do you remember? In Genesis 49, Jacob is old. He, he's getting close to death, and he knows that. He gathers his sons around, and he pronounces a blessing on each one of them. And on Judah, he pronounces a very special blessing, telling him the scepter will not depart from Judah. Now, what does that mean? We might think that's kind of code language, but in, in the language of that day, what uh, Jacob is telling his son is that this promised one is going to come from your line. This king that's going to come, that has been promised by God to rescue us, he's going to come from you, Judah. And so, the royal line... And the Messiah and the promised seed would be established not from Joseph. We would think it would be Joseph, right? He's the, uh, the prince of Egypt, right? Everybody remember the animated uh, movie? Well, it, it would come from Joseph, right? He's the one that's closest to being king. And no, no, it's going to be from Judah. And yet the genealogy isn't traced back to Judah. It's traced to Perez. And the only reason that I can come up with is that the writer intentionally wants us to see ten names. Again, Robert Hubbard says this. Apparently the author 
tailored the genealogy to fit a 10-member scheme, a scheme typical of ancient royal genealogies such as this one. In other words, the writer is giving us a hint that this is not just some old genealogy of old obscure people that, yeah, you don't know about them. There's something to this. And in using these ten names, there's a hint of royalty. Now let's consider uh, some of these names. As I said, we don't know a lot about uh, most of them, but there are a couple of things to note. When we read the list, obviously we know Boaz, we know David, but besides these two, the most prominent name in this list is, anybody know? Nashon. Nashon. Why would we say that he's so prominent? Well, a couple of reasons. One, he's listed fifth. He's the fifth name. And again, this scholar who has done a lot of work in studying ancient genealogies, Robert Hubbard, uh, points out that in ancient genealogies, the fifth place was reserved for someone deemed worthy of special honor and Nashon occupies that place he was a brother-in-law to Aaron the priest so that was his time frame he was the tribal chief of Judah he represented Judah if you'll remember when they took the census they they gathered leaders from every tribe to count everyone in each tribe and so Nashon was the leader of that tribe and according to number 712, it was he who offered the first dedication offering when the tabernacle was set up. So when they came and made their offerings, when the tabernacle was dedicated, Judah was first, the first tribe, and Nashon was the representative from that tribe. And then we have this, a very significant verse. We have to go ahead to 1 Chronicles 2, chapter 10. And again, this is a genealogy, but note what it says. Ram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nashon, prince of the sons of Judah. Another clue of why this genealogy is so significant. Of all the genealogies that are in the Old Testament, this is the only reference that I could find where someone was called a prince who was not officially a prince. <laughs> but interesting, Nashon is given this honorable position of fifth now all of you know a little bit about numbers and how the hebrews felt about numbers and you know that there's a number more honorable than the number five right and it's the number seven you know that now in our list whose name occupies the seventh position it's Boaz. Boaz, next to David, is given the most honorable position in this genealogy, okay? The conclusion of it with David is a substantiation of David's role as king. But uh, uh, Boaz here occupies the seventh place, an honorable place. Now, do you know of anywhere else in Scripture where someone is mentioned as the seventh in a genealogy? You do, right? From the book of Jude, who mentions 
someone way, way, way back near the beginning of the Bible, Enoch. And you remember what he says about Enoch? What does he say? Enoch, the seventh from Adam. So in that genealogy that I was sharing with you earlier from Genesis 5, Enoch shares the seventh position. And you might say, well, okay, big deal. What? Well, what's so significant about that? Well, do you remember that genealogy? So we have Adam. And Adam had other sons and daughters and lived this many years, and he died. And Seth, and he had other sons and daughters, lived this many years, and he died. And then the next one, and then the next one, and he died, and he died, and he died. And it's as if the writer wants us to recognize. Do you remember what God told Adam? Back in Genesis chapter 2, or chapter 3, if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. And the writer is saying, see what happened to Adam and his descendants. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. But this genealogy in Genesis 5 is interrupted when we get to Enoch, the seventh from Adam. There's something unusual that happens. All of a sudden, we read an interesting phrase about Enoch. Enoch walked with God. That phrase can be traced back to Genesis 3 uh, with Adam in the garden. Adam walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And here is Enoch who it says walked with God and Enoch was not, literally was not found. Why? For God took him. Now, What's going on in that genealogy where all of a sudden you have, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and then the seventh, he wasn't found. My contention is that Enoch is a picture of the resurrection. Someone, because of his closeness to God, God spares from death, at least in the typical sense of everyone else in that genealogy. He's a picture of life, of resurrection life, as we have discovered about Boaz, a man who was childless, without a wife, no descendants, a dead end is going to die. And that name and that line is not going to carry on unless God uses Boaz in an amazing way, which he does. And he brings him and Ruth together to continue this line. We're getting close now to being able to figure out what this genealogy is about, aren't we? Well, the most revered name in our list of ten is, of course, David. And so we turn our attention now to him. And as we do so, I want to refer to David as David the king and David the servant. You've probably not heard David referred to that way. You have heard David referred to as king, haven't you? Of course, that's, that's what we know him as. David the king. Do you recognize him as David the servant? Why would we say that? Well, let's see. Who is David? Think about David the person and what we know about him. We know a lot, don't we? We probably know David uh, as well as anybody in the Bible with the exception of maybe Moses, and I'm speaking here of the Old Testament. 
Probably next to Moses, David is the most well-known person in the Old Testament scriptures. He is Israel's first true king, right? They had a king that, that did not work out so well before David, King Saul. But he's the first legitimate king. David is fearless, a giant killer. David is a Renaissance man, isn't he? He's a musician and a poet, a fearless warrior, a fighter, a military man, beloved by everyone in the country. He writes a lot of the Old Testament scriptures, the Psalter. He brings peace and prosperity to God's people. He is called a man after God's own heart. The anointed one, surely David must be the Messiah. Everything at one point looks as if David must be the one that was referred to by God in Genesis 3.15. Look at what all he's done. But when we read David's story, we know he wasn't the one, don't we? We know that David fell. He fell hard. David committed adultery. And to hide that, he committed murder. And so, maybe the first readers of this book, maybe they weren't aware of that. It's hard to exactly say when this book of Ruth was written. Surely it was written in David's time. Maybe afterwards, but, but at least to substantiate David's rule, and the one who had been so renowned and had been exalted so highly had fallen. And so, no, he would not be the one. And yet, when we consider what the Scripture says about someone named David long after David's time, listen to what the scripture has to say, and this is first the covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7. God says to him, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's God's covenant with David, that there would be a descendant from David whom God would establish his throne and his kingdom forever. But even more intriguing than that is what the prophets of the exile had to say. I want to share with you some of those prophets. This is from Jeremiah, who speaks of a coming restoration and says, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Interesting wording, isn't it? David the king, not a descendant of David, not someone like David, but David the king. And this is from Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. 
He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. There's several other of these, but I'll just give you one more from Hosea 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. These prophecies all speak of someone who is coming, and he is referred to as David. Now, it's as if they are speaking of a resurrected David, isn't it? Because at this point, David's dead and in the grave many, many, many years. Well, we know that these prophecies speak of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, the promised one, descended from David. And so Ruth ends with a genealogy that ends with David. And as I told you, when we think about David, what do we think about? We think about David the king. But that's not all we can think about. We have to think of David the king and David the servant. Now, why do I say that? Well, you'll recall this story. This is in Matthew's gospel. We read this earlier in our responsive reading where Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. And at one point, you know, they always come to him with questions. Well, he asked them a question. What do you think about the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, correctly, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, and here Jesus quotes Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And they were not able to answer. Now, here's my question. Why couldn't they answer? It says that they did not have the ability. They were not able. They had the prophecies. <laughs> they knew or should have. And they couldn't answer. But we can answer. We know the answer, don't we? Because David was both the father and the son, the king and the servant. David, when he is writing that, is looking ahead to someone. He knows that he, the adulterer, the murderer, needs a savior. And it would be from him, from this kingly line, this royal line, that God would send a Savior, our Savior. What a story. A really cool, happy story about these obscure people in an obscure village hundreds of years ago. No, <laughs> that's, not, that's not what this is. This is an amazing story about the sovereign hand of God working in the lives of faithful people to keep this royal line going. All throughout the Old Testament scriptures, there's a theme. 
And the theme is that the enemy is doing everything he can to extinguish that line and prevent this Savior from coming. That's why people are always against God's people. That's why God's people have enemies. They're trying to kill them all, exterminate them. This is the work of the enemy. And in the two most beautiful stories of the Old Testament, in my opinion, named after women, Ruth and Esther, God shows his mighty hand to preserve his people and to preserve this line and to bring our Savior into the world. Glory to his name. Amen. Let's pray together.